Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. Good morning, church. You can take a seat. How's everybody doing? Thank you, worship team. Great job. Thank you for serving us, worship team. They arrive early. Also, the people in the booth back there, thank you guys. We appreciate you. We're grateful for you. That does deserve a clap. You guys can clap for them. Thank you. In this season of Thanksgiving, I find myself uh, just overflowing with gratitude for a lot of things. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful to get to be here. My parents are here today visiting. It's good to have them here. I'm very grateful for them. Uh, not the least of which is this church family. I'm so grateful for this church family, what we get to do together, what we get to be a part of. You know, we have a bunch of community groups, uh, and not just community groups, but ministries. The seniors ministry is meeting after the service today, some new groups getting started, a young adult group forming. And in these places, people are building truly authentic, deep friendships that form a brotherhood and a sisterhood of the church family. And I don't take that for granted. That's an incredible thing to get to be a part of. I believe the Holy Spirit is raising up the leaders for this church, and I'm really grateful for that. Heather mentioned earlier, we're coming up on this State of the Church business meeting. He's been forming our staff, our board, our whole leadership community, our members. Um, our team, for everyone that serves, is a profound blessing to us. Um, if you serve regularly on a team here, and for some reason we didn't get an invite to you about our team appreciation dinner come up, coming up, please let us know. Uh, but we've got about, it, it's close to being full, but anyone that serves is gonna be able to be there. I'm very thankful for the team that serves here. I'm thankful to get to teach on a regular basis. Next Sunday, we're gonna start an Advent series as we just look longingly to, together at remembering when Jesus came into the earth. We're doing a Christmas Eve service. We haven't even formally announced it yet. Four to 5 p.m., Christmas Eve, my family and I will be there. It's gonna be some kids specials, full band, candlelight. And we've decided rather than doing two Christmas Eve services, which we technically need to, because especially because of all the kids and we'll have visitors, we are going to open up that back uh, wall there that moves and open up the whole foyer and we're gonna put all the rows really close together and put an extra 100 seats in here so that we can all do Christmas Eve together. Doesn't it sound fun? So it's gonna be... It's, make sure it's 4 to 5 p.m. Christmas Eve, obviously. It's going to be uh, a really, really good time. Next week, uh, we're officially announcing our Christmas offering and details, but I wanted to give you a heads up because I'm so thankful for God's provision, how he provides for us, for you as individuals, for everything we need as a church. Here's what we're praying for this year for our Christmas offering. We want to reduce our debt on this building to nothing. That deserves applause. We, <laughs> we have about... We've, it, it, we were dramatically getting it down. It's all the way down to 135,000-ish. So we're praying for miraculous giving towards that. Another part of the offering is going to our benevolence fund, which is money that we collect prior to a new year that is, goes into a fund dedicated to just helping people that are in need throughout the next year. And money from our budget goes out of that too. We wanna add more money to it so we can help people in our community that are especially underserved. And then the third part of the offering is going towards something we just call kingdom builders. 
meaning we're not sure exactly yet what it's going to be for, but there are various projects next year that we know we're going to need extra resource for, whether it ends up being the field over there, turning it into some football and soccer fields. We need some more space on Sunday mornings regarding classrooms. We're just totally out of space to offer other classes and things that different ministries want to do. So we're not sure what's going to be first, but we're going to collect the kingdom builder money up front so that we can do it when the time comes. So start praying about your participation there By far, though, the thing I'm most thankful for is just the presence of God among us. So grateful for the reality of God. And my parents are here, and they can attest the the cry of my heart for, for the last 22 years since I've really been serving Jesus, since I was 17 years old, has just been, God, I I wanna be a part of what you're doing and what is real. Like, I, I don't want to go through motions. If you're real, I wanna know you. If you're building the church, I wanna be a part of it. If you're wanting to restore family, send me and use me. If you're doing incredible work around the world through missions, let me be a part of it through going or through giving, whatever it may be. And I know from pastoring here, I hear stories all the time about the reality of God breaking into people's lives. Testimonies of changed hearts, restored families, miracles happening in your lives just when you need it over and over again. And it sets up the sermon today, which is called Signs of God's Glory. And before I get into it, I want to just point out that I think in all of our hearts and in the heart of our culture is a desire for that which is real. And part of what has evidenced that, for better or for worse, is things like reality television. But before you put the slide up, Samuel, I want to see who here remembers the very first reality TV show ever called Real World. (laughs) And I'm not endorsing the show. Um, just to be clear, but this is what the logo looked like, bottom left. When that show came out, it was like early to mid-90s, and if you guys remember when that happened, some people were into it, of course, but by and large, people were like, this reality TV thing is insane. It's never gonna catch on. Do you guys remember that? And then, of course, you had some big ones come after that, like Survivor and American Idol, and these became massive hits, and then over the years, we've had things like uh, Master Chef, we've had The Voice, we had a number of friends from the church we pastored in LA, one of them who's still a producer on The Voice, and that's, it's one of the highest rating shows in, on all of television right now. You have Shark Tank, you have endless reality TV shows, but then you have what I consider the culmination of reality media in social media. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and I could list a bunch. You guys have probably heard some of these stats, but they're so staggering. As of 2021, just for YouTube, 300 hours of YouTube video are uploaded every minute of every day. It's hard to even believe. There are 5 billion videos watched per day on just YouTube. Then if you look at the whole of social media, you have 3.8 billion people in the world on social media. And out of those on social media, the average time spent per day is two hours and 16 minutes. So it is a dominating focus in our world. And the average person with social media has nine or more accounts spreading across different networks. Now, these you know, sources of media are not good or evil in and of themselves. They're just platforms. There's good things and really bad things that go through these. What I think it's indicative of is that we as humanity desire reality. We're hungry for reality. If you have little kids right now and you know this like I do, kids, all they wanna watch is YouTube videos made by other kids. They don't, they're not even interested in like produced shows anymore because they're not real, right? The real thing is just watching some kid playing with his toys on YouTube. I'm like, son, you can play with your own toys. You don't have to, and you know, it's just, it's, it's insanity, but it's hunger for reality. The good news is, 
We have a very real God that is the ultimate one that satisfies that need for reality. And we're gonna look at this text. I'm gonna read the whole thing to start the message, John 4, 43 to 54, talking about signs of God's glory. And then we're gonna walk through it slowly looking at each verse. It'll be on screen. After the two days, he left for Galilee, talking about Jesus. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had, to, where, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that this boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Incredible story. And it's worth noting that this happened right after the story we looked at the last few weeks in Samaria. And as a reminder, the Samaritans were, were not welcomed by Jews. They were not considered to be the people of God. The Jews weren't even allowed to associate with them. Yet Jesus had this prolonged encounter with a Samaritan woman who is an outcast from her own people as well at this well. He spoke prophetically into her life and that whole area of Samaria was affected. There was in essence a revival in Samaria with people coming to know the Lord. And what's important to note about that is Jesus didn't even do any extremely crazy miracles, as far as we know. He just spoke prophetically into her life. Now we come into where Jesus goes and visits his hometown, supposedly where all the people of God are, but they are all skeptical. Like he says at the beginning, Jesus pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Because these people are thinking things like, oh, this is Jesus. Like, he's the carpenter's son. He grew up here, we knew him as a little child, and, and Jesus talks elsewhere in scripture about how he couldn't do as many miracles there because they didn't have honor for the prophet. So he arrives there, and the Galileans did welcome him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. They had been there. But if you study what the scholars really believe is happening here, the Galileans are welcoming Jesus, not as much because they want to learn or because they believe there is something there that they need to understand, but because they were kind of skeptical right off the bat. This is Jesus who we know. Let's see if he does something amazing and maybe he'll win us over. It was kind of that kind of attitude. Let's almost be entertained by this. Maybe it will thrill us or something like they are already skeptical. And then it says he visited Cana in Galilee. This is where he, the place where he turned water into wine. And then the story shifts a little bit because this royal official shows up. And this official's son is sick at Capernaum, another city. And he's desperate. He's at the end of his rope. He hears that Jesus is there. He comes to talk to Jesus and he begged him, Jesus, come and heal my son. He's close to death. 
Now, at first, Jesus' response to this is kind of staggering because it seems offensive to this father who just poured his heart out. Jesus kind of clumps this father in with everybody else, and he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So it's a weird thing to say to a grieving father who's seeking healing. If I was that father, I might have been out right there. I might have been like, oh, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for just ignoring what I asked for and basically rebuking me. My son needs help. That's the kind of stuff I'd be thinking. Now, before we read on in the story, it's really important to note the fact that Jesus gives this rebuke about signs and wonders doesn't mean that the whole of Scripture is against the idea of signs and wonders. Quite the contrary. God confirms and uses signs and wonders on a regular basis. Uh, God showed up in a burning bush to Moses. We have signs that Gideon saw, Saul's son Jonathan, King David would seek signs. Jesus actually sent out in the New Testament the apostles to perform signs and wonders among the people. And I love this from a scholar named Paul Boutier. He says, the issue is not the desire for signs. It's a prevailing attitude of unbelief that says, God, if you show me a sign, maybe I will start to believe then. And it leads to number one in your notes. When you have a prevailing attitude of unbelief, even a sign of God's glory won't move you. And God knows this about human nature. That's why he's, I believe that's why, not that I'm claiming to fully understand it, but I believe that's why God doesn't just like do miracles constantly all the time. Like what you think as a kid or as a seeker, God, if you would just show up and do insane miracles, everyone will believe. Just come on, show up. But God knows because he's the master chess player and he knows everything in the human heart that when you have a prevailing attitude of unbelief, you won't even respond to the wonders of God. And let me just give you some more evidence for that. The people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years when they had signs of God's glory every single day, yet they wrestled with unbelief the entire time. They would wake up in the morning and they would have a cloud, a pillar of cloud that would guide them. They would see fire by night, yet they continually went back to unbelief in the midst of daily signs and wonders of God. And I would submit that all of creation, all of science, all of biology, the, the expanse of the universe, the fact that babies are conceived and come out of women's bodies and grow into adults are signs of the glory of God. And yet we look around at all this incredible stuff and we're like, ah, oh, whatever just formed from nothing. We see signs of God's glory, but it doesn't cause us to believe. I'm going to share this story while my dad is here, which is going to be fun. My dad and mom are both uh, lifelong ministers as well. I was raised in the church, and we grew up, uh, I grew up in Virginia Beach. They were both on staff at a church there, and at a Christmas Eve service once, I'm curious if you'll remember this, uh, I was 17, I was new in the Lord, passionate in my faith, and so I was telling all my friends about Jesus. I was bringing friends from my art school and my high school to church, and we had basically almost started a church in the living room of my parents' house, and Christmas Eve was coming up, and Christmas Eve is a great opportunity to invite skeptics, right? Invite people who would never otherwise walk into church, and you should do that at our Christmas Eve service coming up. And so one of my closest friends in high school, her dad uh, was an alcoholic, and he was very... Um, antagonistic towards the things of God. He was a, a, a proclaimed atheist, and I, we would talk to him all the time, and he was suffering and struggling in life. So we were praying for her dad, and he agreed to come to Christmas Eve. And this was a huge deal. We were thinking, oh my goodness, your dad is coming to Christmas Eve. We're gonna pray. He is gonna get saved. I knew my dad was speaking that night. And I, you, know, you know how it is when you bring a friend, you're like, you hope the pastor really delivers. You know what I mean? You hope the worship team really shows up and like knocks it out of the park. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, man, I can't believe he's coming. Lord, 
speak through my dad. Lord, use this worship. Make, just do it only you can do. So we're sitting in the Christmas Eve service. He's, you know, uh, my friend is sitting next to me. He's sitting right there. And we're just praying the whole time. And we're celebrating Jesus. And my dad gets up to speak. And it is the most I've ever felt like my dad was anointed by God as a preacher. Not to say I normally don't think he's anointed. He's always anointed by God as a preacher. But this Christmas Eve service, what happened to me was, as I was praying for this other dad, was the room basically goes dark. My dad's voice, it like wasn't even my dad's voice. I was meeting the Lord. You know those kind of moments? It had nothing to do with my dad or what was happening there. It was just God's manifest presence. I'm crying, and I'm also thinking, oh, my goodness, this is an answer to our prayer. He's about to get saved. Who could ever be here and not melt in the presence of God? That's what I'm thinking the whole time. So he fin- finishes up the 10 or 15-minute you know, Christmas Eve sermon, kind of shorter than usual, and I'm just, I'm a mess. I'm thankful. I'm worshiping. I'm crying. And I look over to him, expecting to see him basically like on his knees and like weeping before the Lord. And uh, he goes, Nathan, you know, I love your dad. uh, But if he didn't shut up in another five minutes, I was going to walk out. Do you remember that story? (laughs) That's when I started learning this lesson that receiving God's word is more about the listener than the speaker. It's not about great preachers. It's not about great worship teams. It's about your and my heart before God. And when your heart is before the Lord, you're gonna like, you're gonna soak up the presence of God wherever you go. You're gonna gonna walk up to a tree and be like, oh my goodness, Lord, you're so good and fall on your knees and worship. You know what I mean? Your, your, your heart is just hungry for God. It, it, so, so we, and we see this evidence in Scripture. In Scripture, we see people physically around Jesus, God in the flesh, but walking away and rejecting him. I couldn't believe that this dad of my friend was in this place where I felt the, the manifest presence of God overwhelmingly, and all he could think was, I'm about to walk out of this service. The point being, to me, it was a sign. It was a wonder. But my friend's dad had a prevailing attitude of unbelief that turned him off even more. God knows this about our hearts. Then we continue to read because the father, he pushes back on Jesus a little bit because he's desperate. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Imagine that desperate prayer of a parent. And then look what Jesus says, go, your son will live. Now on one hand, Those are the words he longed to hear from Jesus. Your son will live. On the other hand, he was kind of not responding to the father's request again. The father was saying, come with me, my son. Jesus says, just go. Your son's gonna live. It's a really interesting,